Hope y'all are doing well. Um, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Um, we are going to be in the book of Acts this week, and then next week, um, the elders and I are shifting gears for a short series. Uh, we're going to look at the book of Haggai. Um, in light of all that's kind of going on with us, we thought it would be a good shift uh, to do that, and then we'll come back to the book of Acts. Um, anyway, so we are in the book of Acts. If, if you uh, haven't been here, you're all invited before, you're all invited after this service to uh, go over with us to our picnic. It's a beautiful day for a picnic. It's going to be awesome. Sun is shining. We can play a lot of tackle football out there. It's going to be awesome. The good news is, as we were talking about the rain, Jack pointed out to me, he said, don't matter because we've got our own building. We can just all go inside. So there you go. I was like, you're right. Oh, that's awesome. But I did cut the grass for no reason this past week. <laughs> so um, anyway, uh, we, we're in the book of Acts chapter 17. And if you haven't been here, we've been looking at the book uh, of Acts for a while. We're like 40-something sermons in. And uh, specifically, we're looking at <clears throat> Paul in Athens. So if you look at verse 16, we've been looking at verse 16 for a couple down through 34 for a couple weeks. Of course, we had Easter, and now we're coming back. So I'm going to pray. I'll give a little bit of a review of, of the previous weeks, and then we'll catch up because we're starting at point number five today. So I'll make sure you know points one through four. But uh, let's pray together, and we'll start with uh, Acts 17. Lord, thanks so much for just how wonderful you are to us, just how you love us, unconditionally, and that um, because of Jesus, we have perfect relationship with you, and because of Jesus, you have declared us perfect, because of Jesus, you have set us on a path toward sanctification, and so none of these things were we worthy of, none of these things were we deserving of, and yet, in your amazing abundance of grace and mercy, you have done all these things for us even when we were enemies of yours. And so for that, Lord, we are astounded. We are awestruck. We are grateful. We pray now as we turn to your word where you have spoken to us definitively that you would come now, uh, Holy Spirit, and teach us, guide us, direct us, lead us into truth, lead us into righteousness, equip us, encourage us, and send us um, again this week to live for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, if you haven't been with us, as I said, we've been going through Acts 17. So, I, I want to give us just a little bit of a, a review of what's going on. We're, we're looking at Paul in Athens by himself, and what are some of the things that he does whenever, uh, are, that are effective for him whenever he's wanting to do evangelism. And so, the title of the sermon, you can go ahead and put it up, is Reaching People Like Paul. I've got so much equipment here, I can't even, I'm going to go this way. Reaching People Like Paul. And so, put up the map for me. Uh, he started out his missionary journey um, down in here, and he's gone all the way up, all the way over, and he left Berea because he was going to get hurt, uh, and so he's down here in Athens by himself. His, his other two guys were up there, and so he's down in here in, into this place that he's heard a lot about, read a lot about. He's quite intelligent, but never has he uh, been there before, and so while he's there, instead of just taking a, a staycation or a vacation or whatever, he's going to go ahead and and continue in evangelism. And so what we've seen thus far that he's done, go ahead and put up number one. 
um, as he got there. Immediately he got there, he saw lots of idols. And he saw that the men were, and women were very religious. But um, instead of being in awe of the things of Athens, he was mostly in awe of or broken by the idolatry in the world. So as we're looking at these things that were happening to Paul, we're kind of putting them in present tense um, for us. So how can we reach people like Paul? Number one, as he was in Athens, we can be broken by the idolatry. Go ahead and put it number two. Uh, another thing that we saw as we're going through is that he used patient persuasion with the people. He was reasoning with them. And so um, we need to be the same. We need to be willing to not uh, just try to do a one and done kind of evangelism encounter with people, but instead make friends with people, be there for the long haul, patiently persuade them however long it takes. It may take years, and that's okay, uh, because we're their friend, and we want to be their friend no matter what. Um, the third thing that we saw, go ahead, <clears throat> is that he goes, whenever he goes there, he goes to both the, the religious centers and the marketplace. So just like us, that gives us uh, an understanding that if we want to reach people, we go to where people are religious, especially in the South. There's lots of those. And we go to what would be the marketplace. That could be the university. There's a lot of places that that could be uh, in modern day. But we want to go where everyone is to be able to reach people. And lastly, what we saw uh, last week, number four, or two weeks ago, is that uh, because he was already doing this, they heard of him, they saw him, and then they invited him in, what we're going to see today, to the Areopagus. So it wasn't just, hey, we think you're really smart. You haven't really done anything yet. Here's your invitation to the Areopagus to come preach to us at Mars Hill and give this long understanding of who you are. But instead, because he was already preaching Christ, that's the thing that invited, that got the invitation into what would be a, a greater opportunity. And so um, <clears throat> if we're going to be effective in our evangelism, that uh, we, we shouldn't just be waiting for the big opportunity one day. But all along the way in the small and the little things, we want to be preaching Christ. And maybe the Lord would or maybe the Lord wouldn't. It's in his sovereign will. But we, we want to already be preaching Christ throughout our life. Now, before we keep going, I want to say this. Um, whenever we say reach people like Paul, I want to make sure that I'm saying that I'm not saying that we need to be Paul. There's only one Paul. And none of us are ever going to be Paul. It's just impossible. I, I don't want you to feel like I'm laying on you that you need to be Paul. Uh, we all are, are Christ followers. We all are part of the church. And we all have been given a mission But not all of us have been given, none of us have been given Paul's mission, okay? So as we're looking at uh, evangelism through the ways that Paul, the the goal of this is to use some of his methods in our own life, but still live your mission that the Lord's given you. And that's different for every single person. Uh, For some people, that's easier. You, You don't have young kids, and you have lots of time, and that's the whole, maybe you're not even married, that's the point of 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, and you've got all kinds of extra time, then you should be uh, doing more evangelism. But for those that, those that are uh, stay-at-home moms with bunches of kids, or you, you're married and you have lots of other things that the Lord wants you to, to do, um, as we're looking at this and we're going through this, I want you to remember, I'm, I'm not saying that you have to be Paul, nor is God through the Holy Spirit saying you have to be Paul. Instead, we're looking at his methods, and if there are things that we can get from that, that we can use in our own life, because every single one of us has a mission, not like Paul, but we all have a mission because we're all part of the church. We want to use those things um, in, in our everyday life. God's not wringing his ha- hands up in heaven expecting us to be Paul. He's not, oh, if we could only reach Rock Hill, if, y'all, if everybody here could be the Apostle Paul. Um, he, he's expecting us to, to live out in obedience the way that he's calling us. Now, what that looks like for you, I don't know. Um, 
It's different for every single one of us. And so as we're going through this, I don't want you to, to lay on yourself legalistic expectations that you think I'm putting on, because I'm not. Um, the Lord and you know what it is that you should be doing in your life of mission, and I want you to use these things uh, as encouragements for methods to be able to do that. So those are what we saw thus far. Uh, now, if you look, <clears throat> let's, go up to, uh, let's go up to verse 19. Uh, I'm sorry, 18, and I want you to be able to see um, how Paul got this invitation into what's known as the Areopagus. So he's in Athens. In verse 18, it says, Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were also conversing with him. So these were some of the philosophers of the day. We're going to talk about them in, in a second. They were conversing with him, and they said, What is this babbler which to say? That's a term of derision. They're not, they're not calling him anything nice there. Uh, and they said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. That's crazy to them about people coming back from the dead. And they took hold of him, and they brought him, here it is, to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. First, you bring some strange things to our ears. So since he was already preaching Christ in the, in the uh, synagogues and the marketplaces, they heard of this and they give him this invitation into the Areopagus because he says that they're talking about this resurrection and they want to hear about it. These people loved knowledge. And so uh, they, were, they were willing to extend invitations to any learned man, learned woman, uh, probably man, and bring them in and give them a platform to be able to teach whatever it was that they were teaching of the day. doesn't necessarily mean that they were going to believe it. They just like to hear a lot of academic speak. So here's yours, here's yours, here's yours, here's yours. Everybody's invited. And they hear Paul. Now, they, they, are, uh, <clears throat> they are making fun of him, calling him a babbler. It's, like a, a, it's basically like someone who's like a chicken, walking around, pecking up stuff and saying stuff and then throwing it back out. But uh, nonetheless, they're inviting him in because they say, you have some strange things to our ears. We wish to know what they mean. And all the Athenians and all the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They enjoyed the, the academic approach to, to life. So that was what brings us to verse 22 when he's there. So um, it's probably most beneficial, and I'm going to do my best to just read uh, in its entirety from 22 to 34, and then we'll go back and we'll see uh, some of the methods Paul used in, in his evangelistic work. So Paul, I'll say this real fast, I know, so, I know, I know, but you should know, this is not like a word-for-word summation of what Paul said. This is Luke hearing it and summarizing it down. So we're getting a bare-bones outline. There's no, this would take us about a minute to read. There's no way that Paul stood up and, and, and made a speech in a minute and a half, and then he sat back down. He probably talked for a good hour, expounding on, on things We have the the summarized version. So here it is. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I also found in an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives himself to all mankind, life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine 
being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has given appointed. Let's read that again. In righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard this of the resurrection from the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from the midst, but some joined him and believed. Among whom were also Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. So you can see there was mixed reaction. Uh, now, back over to verse 22, and let's, let's go ahead and hear... Uh, these other four kind of strategies that Paul is going to employ uh, of what, he, what he's doing. So in verse 22, he says, Men of Athens, uh, I perceive that in every way you are religious. So immediately he's going to disarm them. They're already kind of giving him uh, terms of derision, saying he's not, he's not amazingly smart. Come on, you sound like you don't know what you're talking about. And so he disarms them, noticing where they are. And this, this could be taken either way, as he says, I notice that in every way you're religious. Um, but I think it's more likely a compliment that he's saying, uh, I see that you're spiritual. Now let me talk to you about that spirituality. And then he says to him, For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I, I also found an altar to the inscription, To the unknown God. So in Athens there were many altars all over the place, to all kinds of gods. They, they, they loved little G gods. But they thought, well, just in case we don't have them all, uh, we'll go ahead and make one more to the unknown God, just in case all these are wrong. There's one that's probably out there that we don't know. So let's go ahead and just make one of those. And so when Paul's walking along, he sees, you know, all these wrong, false gods. And then he says to the unknown God, he thinks to himself, well, that's actually, they don't know who Yahweh is, the true God, Jesus. So let me let me take that as my point of, of contact with something that they would be familiar with and let me use that to, to drive down further to be able to talk to them about who Christ is and what he's done. So he says, I see that you have this, this altar to the unknown God and he's ready to uh, point this out to them. This is their, their just-in-case God, just in case none of these other gods are right uh, out of the thousands of, of gods that we have here. Um, let's make this one. It's, it's their... It's their last hope in case we don't get it right. Uh, and so uh, another thing at the Parthenon here is that all their images of gods were usually images of struggle. Uh, and it represented their struggle to kind of figure life out and make life work and try to struggle towards things. And so Paul sees this, this struggle in their images and wants them to see that their struggle is actually from the Lord. And there is an actual God that they can, they can find. And so he is going to... Uh, intelligently make a point of contact for them for the gospel. So whenever uh, we're in, using our strategies, that's, that's our next method that we can do. So reaching people like Paul, number five is this. Um, make intelligent points of contact for the gospel with whatever they're familiar with and know. They, every person has some kind, of, some kind of knowledge of God. Every person has some kind of understanding. We know this from Romans 1. That everybody has some kind of understanding that there's a God. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I'll, I'll read it to you. Um, in, verse, uh, in verse 18, it said, I'm sorry, 20, it says, For God's invisible powers, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived, that means by us who are humans, ever since creation of the world. 
and, and, and things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So every person, even a non-Christian, knows that there's a God, understands that there's a God, and there's, there's a point of contact in conversation with them, whatever their, their worldview is, that we can, under, if we get to know them in some, some like uh, manner, we can understand what their worldview is, and we can tell them, uh, actually, let me help you understand. So we want to make a point of contact with them for the gospel. Uh, so Paul's approach here is, let me tell you about the one that you're worshiping. Now, we need to understand that he doesn't say that they're worshiping rightly. Uh, Paul's not equating their worship to the unknown God as the right real worship to the real God. But he does see that they're worshiping. This word worship there, by the way, is not proskuneo or laturo. It's uh, usabete, which just means they have like religious feelings, movements toward. So it's not even worship like we think of, you know, uh, you know, Jordan grabbed the guitar, we're all going to worship Jesus right now. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a feeling of religiosity towards something. So he's saying, I, I walk through here, and I see that you have um, a, a, an unknown God. Let me tell you who it is. It's what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So it's quite intelligent to see the, the one point of contact that he can w- make with them about Jesus and, and let them understand that that's actually about God, the one that they don't know. Now, we should all pause here, and as we're realizing that in, in evangelism, we want to make a point of contact for the gospel with people uh, so they can come to know Christ. That If we stop and think, this is actually in our own story of coming to know Christ, what he's done for us. We can realize that every single one of us, because we're sinful, are tremendously self-centered, tremendously self-focused, and, and rebels at heart. We're rebels at heart. And yet, in our 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 mad rebellion that we have, God has wonderfully created numerous points of contact for every single one of us to understand Jesus' gospel. And even greater, because we're all, even though we're rebellious, we're also amazingly complex and different, every single one of us in our personalities and our, and our way, patterns of sin, that it would take literally millions of points of contact to reach every single one of us. And God, because he's all-knowing and all-powerful, has created all of these points of contact for us rebels to draw us in out of grace and kindness to him. So in the same way that we want to reach people, the Lord himself has done this for every single one of us who are in Christ out of amazing sheer mercy and grace. Um, And so just wanted to highlight for us how the Lord has done that even for us. And so in his kindness, because he's done that for us in his mercy, this is the gospel. We, in turn, work and endeavor to do that so that people can come to know him. Now, I want you to notice that he doesn't say, when he says, um, what you therefore worship as unknown, this proclaim to you. He doesn't say, I've noticed that you all worship a bunch of scubala gods. Um, instead, he, he, doesn't, uh, he doesn't do that, but he doesn't necessarily assert validity. But what he does say is that, you are worshiping in some way an unknown God that I want you to understand who he is. And so he's helping them understand that they are absolutely surrounded, as Romans 1 has told us, surrounded by revelation from God. And uh, as he's helping them understand, he's going to continue forward. Now, we're going to see what he does in here in just a second. But the, uh, the first thing he does, uh, and, and we can do this with people in our, in our, in our life, whether they're uh, they have a worldview that bends towards religiosity or a worldview that bends towards complete irreligiosity. Irreli- uh, 
we want to make an intelligent point of contact. Just real practically, the way that you're going to do that is uh, becoming friends with people. That's just the way that you're going to do it. After you've been friends with people for a while, you're going to know how they view the world, what they think about the world, if it's nihilistic or if it's hopeful or, or whatever. We're going we're gonna to understand who they are and what their worldview is by getting to know them, having dinner with them, talking with them about what they love, talking with them about sports or whatever it is that they're into, and, and just really being their friend. Uh, and then after that, we can, we can use speech, we can use language to help them understand uh, how their worldview might have some holes in it, might have some wrong thinking, but also, since they're all image bearers, how they might have right thoughts. Because um, I- image bearers that are non-believers still can have right thoughts. They might be misinformed and have, have also wrong thoughts, but right thoughts about who God is. And we can help shape that. And the only way we're going to be able to do that is by getting to know them. Um, New Testament commentary says, for the sake of the gospel, Paul's willing to accommodate his speech to the level of his audience so that they can understand who Christ is. Um, <clears throat> now, as we go into this next section, that's, that's really about the altar to the unknown God in that particular section. As we go into this next section, uh, he's going to employ some apologetics. Now, uh, as he's doing this, he's going to do this in a couple ways. First, he's going to point out the logical problems that, with the belief that they have about God's And the second thing he's going to do is he's going to explain God in creation. And those two things are going to be uh, ways that he is going to employ apologetics. If if you don't know what the word apologetic means, um, it comes from the Greek word apologia, and it just means speaking in defense of. And so he's going to employ apologetics here with the Epicureans and the Stoics. Um, So if you look at verse 24, he says this, The God who made the world and everything in it, Being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he gives uh, to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind, that's talking about Adam, to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. And yet he is not actually far from each one of us. So... Here's how he uses apologetics, and this is, this is number six, the sixth method that Paul uses that we can, you can use in our strategy to reaching people. Use apologetics as a mean, means to evangelism. It means studying uh, things that can reach unbelievers really well, understanding the questions that unbelievers would have about God. How, usually it re- revolves around the problem of evil, but whatever questions they might have, studying those things, understanding those things, because... These are real legitimate questions. Some people have real legitimate questions about the nature and character of God or who he is or where he's from and how that all works. We want to study and understand those things. Uh, not everyone can do this. I realize it's incredibly difficult. I'm not actually very good at it at all. But there are, there are people even in Rock Hill that are, that are tremendously good at it. Um, but Paul uses apologetics as a means towards evangelism. And here he's going to point out their logical problems with their belief about, about God. And the second thing he's going to do is, is explain God from creation, which is brilliant because the, specifically the Epicureans and the Stoics both have flawed views of creation. And so he decides to use the doctrine of creation as an end point or a beginning point to, to reach them. Anyway, so here's the logical problem. You can see it there in verse 24. Uh, the God who made the world and everything in it does not, uh, and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. So 
Here's the logical problem with their approach to God. He said, does it make sense to you that the God created everything would be contained in a temple and that he would need for you to put food out for him? If he creates not just food, the concept of food for nourishment, does it make sense that he needs for you to feed him? If he's the creator of everything, that doesn't make any logical sense. And so as he approaches that and helps them see that the God that made everything <clears throat> doesn't live in a temple made by man and he doesn't need for you to serve him as though he needs anything because he's the one that gives life and breath and everything to everybody else. You, you don't feed God to keep him alive. He's the one that keeps you alive. He's a, he, the point that he's trying to make is God is the sustainer and, and you don't, he doesn't need you. God's the sustainer of life and he needs no one. Uh, the second thing that he wants to do is explain how God acts in creation. He tells them that God is the creator of the universe. He explains why God created and that it was not necessary for him to do so, but that he existed perfectly uh, before all the creation in a perfect relationship with the Trinity. And the way he's going to do this, um, unbeknownst to them, is actually quote Old Testament scripture. You can see that uh, he's going to quote Isaiah chapter 42, verse 5 in chapter 24, when he says, the God who made the world and everything in it uh, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands. And so as he's, ex- as he's quoting uh, Isaiah 42, 5, specifically about the doctrine of creation, he's speaking exactly to the Stoics and the Epicureans. And th- here's how. The Stoics had no doctrine of creation. They, they, they had no concepts of it. They had no thoughts of it. So here's Paul tell, is telling them exactly how creation happened since they had no doctrine of creation and how it would happen. Um, and the Epicureans... Uh, their flawed view of creation was what's happened in Romans 125. In Romans 125, it says uh, that those, remember the Epicureans were the lovers of, of pleasure. Uh, they, they, they would pursue pleasure. They thought it was the highest thing to do. In verse 25 in, chapter, in Romans chapter 1, it says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, they worshiped and served the creature or created things rather than the creator who is forever blessed. Amen. So, their problem with the doctrine of creation is they didn't, since there is a creator, worship the creator, but instead worship the created things by the creator, specifically pleasure. And so he uses the doctrine of creation as an inroad to be able to talk to both of them. One had no doctrine of creation. He's trying to help them understand uh, and see that there is a God who creates everything and that he uh, governs and, and has care for everyone. And then for the Epicureans, he's helping them see your main issue is that you worship all the created things, which is not, it's not what you're wired for. Instead, you're, you're made to enjoy those things to point you to the creator. Um, and so this is, this is the way that Paul reaches these specific people. Now, Calvin, as he's looking at this, is going to comment and he says, uh, it's important for them because... Paul's saying that they're worshipers and they're not, they're not worshiping God correctly, that they need to know who God is so that they can worship him correctly. Calvin says it this way, it's far better first to know God than to rashly worship him whom you did not know. God cannot be worshiped rightly unless he first be made known. And so uh, he's not known correctly by them. So this worship that they have is not right worship, although Paul is going to, uh, as I said from the New Testament commentary, accommodate his language to them so for the purpose of, of helping them come to know Christ. So when he calls it worship, Paul wouldn't necessarily say it's, it's right worship, but he's trying to accommodate his language to them so that they can have a good conversation about, about who Christ is. And he's helping them see that God is far bigger than they ever imagined, that 
the altar that they're going to try to build for him is not something that would actually serve him because he's the sustainer for himself. Um, and in verse 27, you can see apologetics in practice where he says uh, that they should seek God and hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him, yet he's actually not far from each of us. So as he's explaining that God's bigger than you can imagine, he's the creator of all things, he's worthy of your worship, he's actually trying to help them see because the Stoics believed that God was around but very impersonal, that God doesn't want to have a personal relationship with him. And he says that you you can actually seek God and you can feel your way towards him and you can actually find him. And yes, God is all around, but he's not impersonal. He's a personal God that you can know him, that you can find your way towards him. And he's actually supremely more close than you would even think. And so he's changing their worldview of trying to help them understand that uh, this unknown God who you worship can be known and he can be known deeply and intimately. So that's the, that's the second strategy for the day that he uses, is using an apologetics for a means of evangelism. Now, as he continues in, in verse 28, he's going to do something else. But before we do that, um, we should talk, we, we've done this several times, but Paul is going to quote here uh, poets in, uh, of the day, people who, who uh, aren't believers, and as he does that, as he quotes their poets of the day, he's going to take those things that they say and, and equate it as, as absolute truth and say that this thing that you, your poets say, which is actually true, they say it, your poets say it's about Zeus, but it's actually not about Zeus, it's about God. So what he's doing is he's using the, the contemporary culture and poets of the day that, that when they think it's about somebody else, he's still using it, which is remarkable, and saying it's actually about God, which means image bearers that are unbelievers can say true things quite often. They still may be wrong in some of the things that they say, but they still can say things that are right. And so whenever we're thinking about that, uh, when we're looking at the poets of our day, the artists of our day that are image bearers but still unbelievers, we can ask ourselves, do they have any kind of shred or kernel of truth? Do they have access to any kind of truth? The answer is yes, but not 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 exhaustive complete. They don't, they don't have the Bible, nor are they caring about it, but they are still able to say true things. So whenever we realize that, we can ask ourselves, then what should be our involvement in uh, understanding the poets of the day so that we can understand those things so that whenever they, we want to have talks about the gospel, we can, <laughs> we can know who it is that they listen to, know what it, who it is that they read, and take those things and actually show that it's about Jesus. Now, I tried the, this, this week. I, I Googled, because um, I don't listen to the radio, the top 40 uh, songs in America right now. I had no idea who any of these people were. Um, I think Justin Bieber was one of them, so I didn't know who he was. But I'd never heard any of these songs. And I would say, I'll say, it's a whole lot more difficult, I think, today to do this than perhaps 20 years ago. Uh, whenever, like, U2 was writing stuff. And you're like, hey, you can actually talk about Jesus with that. Um, I read some of these, these songs, these lyrics, and there's very little, uh, very little lines that you can point to Jesus with, is maybe the best way to say it. Um, a, whole lot of, a, whole lot of, a whole lot of debauchery, maybe is just the only way to say it. Uh, so I think it's more difficult today. But uh, with movies, we certainly can. With movies, we certainly can. Even Harry Potter, this guy is going to die to save his friends uh, so that they can all be saved from the evil you know, can't say his name, Voldemort. I mean, that's, that's, that she just 
without realizing it as an unbeliever, rip the story from the Bible. The man Jesus is going to die to save his friends from Satan. Like every story that's really good is just going to retell the Messiah story. Uh, the Matrix is the same thing or, or whatever. Uh, so we can still in movies see these things and how they happen and point them out and say, look, just look at this. If you, if you take one big step back in almost any movie, it's usually the whole thing of Lost. Jack is going to die to save his friends from this, from this evil smoke monster. Like, my whole point is like, all of them, all of them are doing this, right? All, of them, all the stories are doing this. And so whenever we are able to, with people that, that are unbelievers, we can point out probably not the songs of the day because they're... I, it's hard. I, I can go ahead and tell you, it's hard to read the songs of the day and do that. But certainly with the way that films are being made today, we can say, you know this story that you're looking at that you think is so amazing? There's a story that it's trying to copy, and it's already been told, and it's the greatest story ever. Um, so whenever we're thinking about uh, artists of the day, I think it's okay for us to, to understand our culture so that we can have conversations with them. Now, we don't want to just... Uh, and indulge ourselves into culture to the point to where we look like it, we act like it, and we're becoming sinful. That's not healthy. But to the point to where we can understand and have conversations with people, I think that's okay. Paul's going to use his knowledge of poets and artists because he was a very intelligent man. He had read all of these guys. Um, he's going to do that right here um, in verse 28. In verse 28, he's quoting Epimenides. Um, this is somebody, <clears throat> this is said by Menos. It's written by Epimenides. And it's the son of Zeus, and he's speaking on, speaking on behalf of his father, Zeus. And he's saying, hey, everybody, Athenians, uh, because Zeus is God, in Zeus we live and move and have our being. That's what they believe, because they believe that Zeus was God. And, this, and the quote two right there in the same verse um, is written by Aratus honoring Zeus. And he says, for in Zeus we, we are indeed all Zeus's offspring. Now, this is not true by any means. But he, Paul's going to quote these two particular poets. And as he's quoting these two particular poets, uh, he's going to try to help them see, you say that's about Zeus. And those statements are actually true when you say it's about God. Paul actually quotes um, other poets in other places, even in the Bible. He quotes, uh, he quotes Meander, Menander in 1 Corinthians 15.33. And even uh, in this first one where he quotes Epimenides, he actually quotes him again in Titus 1.12. So Paul knows poets and Paul knows poetry. Um, and he's going to use that here uh, for the things that they're familiar with already and help them see that that's actually about Jesus. So it says, in him we lo- live and move and have our being. And he's going to help them say, yeah, that's true, but it's not Zeus. It's God. And it says, for we are indeed his offspring. Yeah, that's true. We are his offspring, but it's not Zeus. It's God. That's why verse 30, I mean 29, is so amazing. Because it doesn't say being then his offspring. That's why when it says being then God's offspring, so he's pointing, he's bringing all all their mind down to saying, yeah, that's true. So being then, not Zeus, God's offspring, we ought to... uh, we ought not to think that the divine is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. God's far bigger than what you think you can shape. We all live and move and have our being in God, but you can't just form uh, an altar to him and say, There's, there he is, he's in his little temple, you know, give him some food in case he gets hungry. You, you have a, a wrong view about who God is. He's far greater and expansive than you've ever co- thought of. And 
far more intimate than you could ever picture. Far more intimate than you would ever imagine. He wants to know you personally as a relationship. So here's the seventh strategy. Use your knowledge of the culture. And I should have put a little parenthetical statement, but don't go sinful. <laughs> Use your, your knowledge of the culture and quote poetry that they're familiar with or whatever you can find. It's not, it's not really easy to find a lot today. Um, <clears throat> showing how God seeks us out. Stott, John Stott writing, uh, looking at this says, it is remarkable that Paul should have quoted from two pagan poets. That is remarkable. He's quoting from two pagan poets. It's remarkable that he does that. And his precedent gives us warrant to now be able to do the same and indicates that glimmerings of truth, insights from general revelation may be found in non-Christian authors. In other words, non-Christian authors can, can say true things even about God, even though they don't realize it, because they're image bearers, because they're made in the image of God. Uh, so they, they have the ability to say that. Um, by quoting these poets, Paul is not saying that he agrees with the pagan setting in which the citations flourished. Instead, he's trying to help them see that they're actually about Jesus. They're actually about Jesus. Um, uh, let me skip that. We'll keep going. Um, so... Uh, His means to evangelism here is to show how their artists, and even for us, our means of evangelism is to show how artists or poets of the day, uh, since all truth comes from God, is about Jesus. Now, if they're they're wrong statements, we don't point to those. (laughs) We don't do that. We point to the ones that are right and show how they're actually about Jesus and then uh, help them understand even further who God God is. So if we take a big step back, I want to point out something that's pretty amazing. Remarkable here. Um, Paul, in his approach as he's talking to the Areopagus, though he quoted scripture once, doesn't say as it says in the scriptures. So if he were talking to people that were familiar with the Old Testament, he would probably quote a lot, whole lot more Old Testament. But since he's talking to the Areopagus in Athens, he takes a step back. He does quote the Bible, doesn't tell him, and he uses uh, a, lot more, uh, a lot more points of contact that they're going to understand. He, he doesn't have to use the Bible to tell them about Jesus. He uses their, their poets. He's <clears throat> helping them understand through the doctrine of creation, which they just had wrong views of, uh, how they can fully understand the doctrine of creation. So uh, we should realize whenever we're, we're, we're reaching out to people, wherever they are in that kind of that spectrum from religiosity to irreligiosity, irreligiosity from their understanding to Scripture to, to no understanding of Scripture, there's always an ability to be able to have a conversation with them about Jesus. And so... If they, they don't know, if, over here they know a lot. If they, they know a lot about the Bible, then we want to use the Bible. If they don't know a lot about the Bible, we want to, we want to take different roads. We want to take different roads. We don't necessarily have to come at them from Scripture. Scripture's true, and it always will work. But if they don't have any base of knowledge, Paul here, he quotes it once, but then he uses even their poets of the day. Um, <clears throat> we just want to make sure that the things that we say are absolutely true. Now, um, as we keep going, we're going to see what happens. Um, as he presents the gospel and, 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 and reaches them, certainly it was probably much longer. He says in verse 29, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think about the divine being like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art of imagination of man. Because he's, he's vastly bigger than that. The times of ignorance God overlooked previously. But now, <clears throat> this is where it's interesting. He commands all people everywhere to repent. So at this particular moment, Paul just doesn't kind of leave the message there and say, there it is about God. 
there's no, there's no drawing the net, as we would say in evangelism practice, right? This is the point where, since you have the information, I want you to understand that you need to make a decision. So now he's going to call them to repentance and help them understand that Jesus will one day judge the world, and he wants them to be known as righteous and not unrighteous. So in our evangelism, I want to make sure that we, I mean, this is very explicit, and we should know this, but Paul does this. He doesn't just give them the information and say, there it is. But instead, at the end, he's going to draw the net. He's going to say, here's the information. Hey, let's make a decision about it. What do you want to do? Is, it, is today the day? <clears throat> Number eight, wait, uh, reach people like Paul. Present the gospel. Tell them that God commands them to all to repent and turn from their sin. So information presented is great. But after that's done, and listen, it may not, be, it may not all be in the same sitting, which is fine. It may take several meetings. It may take months. But at the end of however long it might take of all these things, we want to in the very end, the Lord, the Lord wants this. Jesus commands this. Okay, now do you want to trust in Jesus? Make the offer and see if they will, they will trust in Christ. This is where Paul does this. He, he, he tells them that, that they need to repent. He tells them that they need to trust in Christ and believe. We don't want to ever neglect, uh, whenever we speak for Christ, to also tell people. And this is rough. I know this is tough. I know at the very end, like, that's, we want to just give them the information, and, like, it's so hard to be able to say, and now you should come to know Christ. Believe me, I, I've been there and in those situations where it's like, ah, I don't know. I don't know. But we don't want to ever neglect this opportunity we have to also call people to repentance and confession of sin and come to know Christ. It is the essential element of evangelism. Uh, J.I. Packer, I've said this numerous times, J.I. Packer, when he defines evangelism, says, message delivered, not effect produced. Message delivered is our job. Tell them about Jesus, call them to repentance. Effect produced, that's what God does. You can't make them get saved. Evangelism isn't, it didn't happen only if they got saved. That would, that would really dishearten all of us, right? Evangelism is message delivered. God will, God will save or God will not save. Um, but it's not effect produced. Now, um, we've, been, we've been talking about uh, evangelism for a while, and we've been trying to figure out, whenever we're looking at Paul, whenever we're looking at Remedy, whenever we're looking at these two things uh, side by side, it seems like whenever we're Remedy Church is, uh, we, we do pretty well, and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we're doing great towards evangelism, and sometimes we, we, we could do better. There's this kind of ebb and flow. Some of that's life. Some of that's scheduling. Some of that's because so many have so many kids, you just want to sleep. You know, like, we understand there's a lot of things going on for all of us, right? Um, John Stott writes this uh, regarding, and I, don't, I wouldn't say this is necessarily directed towards Remedy because he doesn't know us, right? But when he's looking at 21st century evangelicalism, looking at all 21st century evangelicalism, and he, he's looking at those who are Christians who, who don't find themselves ever, ever doing evangelism. So when I read this, I don't want you to say, oh, uh, Fudd thinks this is everybody in the church. I don't think it's everybody in the church. It might not be anybody. But when I read it, I was struck by the truth of it. And so I want to share it with you. And it, it could be you, but it might not. But still, it was really good. Asking the question about why 21st century evangelicalism doesn't seem to find themselves doing evangelism. He says, we don't speak as Paul spoke because we don't feel as Paul felt. 
If we do not speak like Paul because we do not feel like Paul, this is because we have not seen like Paul. That was the order for Paul. He saw the idolatry. He felt deeply burdened for them, and then he spoke. It all began with his eyes. It all began with his eyes. He saw. So if that resonates with you, then let's, let's accept the challenge of this. Let's open our eyes more and see. Let's open our eyes more and see. Begins with that, and when we see, then we'll feel. And then we feel, Lord willing, will he equip us to speak, to speak. And here's the response. And here's the response for every person in this room today. There are three responses that he outlines for us. Response one, reject Jesus. That's the response one. You can see it here, verse 32. When they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. That's response one. Hopefully that won't happen here. If you don't know Christ, we don't want you to mock. We don't want you to reject. We want you to trust in Christ. But that might be some of the responses whenever we are sharing with Christ. There's three possible responses. And you don't need to think that response three is your job, right? Paul shared the gospel at the Areopagus. And what happened? Some rejected. Some mocked. If the Apostle Paul has that response, we will too. We will too. Some mocked. Response two. Some said, I want to investigate more. You can see it there. It says some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. That's fine. That's perfectly fine. Sometimes in your evangelism, like I said, it's not going to happen all in a one-time deal. Sometimes the Lord might do this, but it might take weeks, months, even years, where somebody continually needs to hear more. Somebody continually needs to hear more. And, And you need to feel the freedom whenever that's the case. If you don't know the answer to something, to say, you know, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know. It's okay to say you don't know. You can say, I'll find out for you. And you can hit Google right there. Or you can call your community group leader. Or call, call me. Um, but this is the second response. One is reject. Second is investigate. But there's the third response. The glorious third response that can happen. Verse 34. But some men joined him and believed. And among those were those listed. Some men joined and believed. And that's what we want. And Lord willing, remember, that's, that's the Lord that does that. Those are the three responses that we will see whenever we have uh, opportunities to do evangelism. And those are the re- three responses, if you're, not, if you're not a Christian, that you can make right now. You can say no, you can say I need more time, or you can trust in Christ right now, this morning, in here. If you don't know Christ, I invite you to come talk to me right after the service. Come with us to the picnic. Let's sit down, and we will talk the entire time. And I can tell you everything that I can think of that you have questions towards about Jesus. And if you want more time, that's fine. Um, I invite you and encourage you to talk to us. Those are your three responses. Which one will you make today? Will you reject? Will you say more time? Or will you believe? For those that are in Christ, listen. Be encouraged in your evangelism. And know that those are the three responses Paul got Those are likely the three responses we're going to get. And it's okay. The Lord is the one that saves. The Lord is the one that saves. We are blessed to be able to have this opportunity to tell others about Jesus. It's a great gift that he gives us. Let's pray together.